Hey, welcome back. I am Kim Munson, and we are going to have a conversation with D.K. Williams. He is an attorney. He is also uh, doing podcasts on speakeasy ideas called The Law with D.K. Williams. So, D.K., welcome. Good morning, Kim. Thank you for having me. You bet. Uh, you are doing an amazing amount of work here. If you go to speakeasyideas.com and uh, go to the law, you have uh, uh, this is episode number 50, Ray versus Correct. Blair. So that means there's 49 before that, right? That's right. Almost one a week. I missed a couple, but almost one a week. Wow. This Every is... Thursday, yes. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah, explain that to our folks. So what are you doing exactly with Speakeasy Ideas? Yeah, um, I've been doing this podcast um, about the law, and uh, it kind of started with me almost just over a year ago, I guess. Um, and I made some different comments uh, on social media about you know what, what cases actually meant. Because um, it's obvious sometimes on, on the news, uh, cable news or on the radio, where somebody is talking about a case, and one that really jumped in my mind at the time was Citizens United. Mm-hmm. And people are talking about it, and it's clear they haven't read it. I mean, I'm not just saying that they might have a different interpretation of it. They haven't read it. They're, they're basing what they've heard from somebody else and drawing these, and having these passionate opinions about something they haven't read. And so I, I see that as something that's not ideal. You know, if you're going to have an opinion about something, um, you should have read the text, right? Yes. Uh, or at least acknowledge that. Or at least say, you know what, I haven't read it, but this is what I understand, which is fine, right? Because nobody's going to read these cases. Very few people are going to read these cases. But I think it's important to know that because when people talk about um, uh, Citizens United, they talk about how this is giving uh, corporations personhood or counting them as people with rights. That's not actually what it did at all. I mean, what Citizens United said was that the federal government, via the Federal Elections Commission, cannot censor a documentary before an election. I mean, that's what it's about. So that's got me started on it. And there's so many cases out there that I think are important. And uh, recently, there's been some involving the Electoral College, which are going to have a major effect on the elections in 2020. And so I got into those, uh, the past three uh, podcasts. Okay. And I had uh, actually, you know, we send out a a newsletter each week and I recommend that you sign up for it. There's a lot of great information and upcoming guests, but I uh, had something incorrect in there. I said that we would be talking about a Supreme court case regarding this decision here in Colorado, whether or not electors uh, have to cast their votes for the the uh, presidential candidate went, that got the most votes here in Colorado, or if they could, you know, cast their vote however they wanted. And that was not a right. Supreme Court case, was it? We need Correct. To- what, what we've had happen here in this past uh, summer, uh, spring and summer, we've had two cases from different courts that are lower level courts, not the U.S. Supreme Court. Okay. Uh, the first one was in May of this year. It came out of the state of Washington. It was Guerra versus Washington. That's G-U-E-R-R-A. Um, and in that case, from 2016, there were three presidential electors um, that were required by Washington state law to vote for the winner of their state election, which was Hillary Clinton. And three of these people were like, you know what? And it, this was kind of a nascent movement that didn't really pick up a lot of steam. But there were some progressives and Democrats that were so aghast at the prospect of Donald Trump being the next president. Some of these people said, you know what, let's. If we can get some of these Trump electors to not vote for Trump, maybe we can keep him from getting the 270 that is the minimum required to, to win the Electoral College. 
And so a lot of these Democrats, or a handful of them, said, hey, guys, we'll vote for a Republican like uh, John Kasich or Colin Powell. If you guys do the same thing, maybe we can stop uh, Trump from being president. So that was the idea. And three of these electors in Washington did that, and they violated Washington state law. And they were fined $1,000 for violating the law and not voting for Hillary Clinton. And it went all the way up to the state court. The state Supreme Court in Washington upheld the state statute that said electors must vote for the popular vote winner. Um, And then a couple months later in August, the Tenth Circuit, which is based here in Denver, Colorado, had a similar case, but it dealt with Colorado statute. And in Colorado, you you had three, but only one guy ended up actually crossing off Hillary Clinton on his electoral ballot, uh, Michael Baca, B-A-C-A. And that was against Colorado state statute that said, hey, these electors, all you can do is you're just rubber stamping the electoral college uh, or the the popular vote. And, of course, in Colorado in 2016, it was also Hillary. So Michael Baca was part of this, uh, this movement, and he scratched out Hillary's name. And I believe he did put in John Kasich. But Secretary of State of Colorado at the time was Wayne Williams. He said, you're violating state law. You can't do that. I'm going to remove you as an elector for not doing what you're supposed to do. And he he actually said, hey, I'm going to turn you over to the attorney general for misrepresenting an an oath and fraud and all this type of stuff. That never happened, but it was part of the the, uh, decision. And uh, Baca was replaced by somebody who did what they were supposed to do under state law, rubber stamped it. Baca sued, went to the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, and they said, Colorado can't do that. Colorado state statute cannot bind the electors. They can vote their conscience. They can vote however they want. Um, so you've got two competing appellate decisions from different places, but we need one rule for the entire United States, right? It's the Constitution that is, is, is telling people how this works. And so having different rules could be a major problem in 2020 if it's a close race. Now, if somebody wins by 100 electoral college votes, it's not going to matter. But if it's close and you've got a handful of electors that say, hey, the Tenth Circuit, so I can vote for whoever I want. I don't like the winner. I'm going to vote for somebody else to throw the election, or whoever the winner is, quote-unquote winner, under the 270 electoral college threshold. So nobody gets 270, and that would put it into the House of Representatives. But here's the issue. It only goes to the House of Representatives if somebody doesn't get a majority. But if there are electors just voting their conscience and not doing what their state statute tells them to do, somebody's got a majority. It's just how do we count those votes? We either count them the way they voted them, just, hey, I want to vote for candidate X, even though my state says I have to vote for candidate Y, I'm going to vote for X. So one of the presidential candidates can say, no, that guy's vote counts the way his state tells him he has to vote. And the other candidate could go, no, he can vote however he wants. So it's a question of how do we count those votes, and if it's close, it can make the difference in who the next president is. And if the U.S. Supreme Court doesn't resolve this one way or the other, and I think there's a correct way, but one way or the other, that could be a major problem. And, um, you know, and then and, and if the U.S. Supreme Court then tries to decide it after the election, you can imagine oh how the protest from whoever loses, right? So that's kind of the outline of it. Um, it's probably a lot there to, to jump into, but I can even give you one worst-case scenario. It could even get worse. Let's say that one of the Supreme Court justices dies. So now it's eight, 
and let's say the Supreme Court after this controversy has arisen after the election, and they can only get a four to four a four to four decision, you know, mm-hmm. um, then you have to figure all that out. But it's certainly going to make the uh, the results that much more controversial. Um, and you could have competing presidencies like in Venezuela. <laughs> you know, oh no, my. I won. No, I won. Oh so my I, gosh! It, it could happen, right? I mean, I don't think it's likely, but it could happen unless the Supreme Court clear, clears us up. Okay. Now, a couple of things. We're going to go to break, but first of all, uh, your law episode forty-nine is the Guerra versus Washington that I think you yes. just referenced, and then the law episode fifty is Ray versus Blair. Is that the other one that yes. we were talking about? Okay. Yeah, Ray versus Blair is the U.S. Supreme Court case, but that's from 1952, and it doesn't really answer the question. But both courts cite it because it talks about the Electoral College. Okay, so you can get that at Speakeasy Ideas. Now, I have three questions that will go to break uh, and, and would like to get the answer to that. <clears throat> well, two maybe. First of all, who chooses the electors in each state? And then what does the Constitution say about this? So we're going to go to break. This is Kim Munson. I'm having a conversation with D.K. Williams speakeasy ideas and the law uh, about this uh, whole electoral college, the electors, really an important conversation, pretty complicated, but uh, we want to bring this forth so that you, the listeners have an idea what's going on. We'll be right back. Hey, welcome back. I am Kim Munson. We're having a conversation with DK Williams. Uh, he is writing the law at, and you can find that at Speakeasy Ideas. Just had a text from Katie, and she said, "This is so interesting, DK." So, uh, <laughs> love hearing <Awesome>. that. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, my two questions: Who chooses the electors in each state? All right. So the Constitution says that each state can select them, and so they can come up with different ways to do it, and it is morphed into a rubber stamp. For the most part, like we're, we just kind of expect Hillary won Colorado, so she gets Colorado's nine electoral college votes. In Washington, same thing, although they get ten. So that's how it's morphed, and nobody has really challenged that in a substantial way until, until 2016 or when those, those cases happened. Um, but the, so the Constitution is clear that states get to select their electors, and it's, just, it's up to the states. And every state has a winner-take-all system right now, except two. Maine and Nebraska actually do it differently. They divide up their electors by their congressional districts. So if you win a congressional district, you get one electoral college vote. And so, like in Colorado, we've got seven congressional districts. So that could go four to three or whatever combination of um, uh, how that could break down. And whoever wins the entire state in Nebraska – and in Maine, get the other two electors. They win the entire state, you get like a bonus two. Um, and because the Electoral College is based on the number of congressional uh, members that you have, plus your two state senators. So that's how we get that number. Um, so the issue is whether or not, when the states select their electors, can they make them bind themselves to a particular vote? And so... And the way my little Johnny Cochran rhyme to sum it up, the way I, the way the Tenth Circuit agreed in the Colorado cases, that states can select their electors, but they cannot direct their electors. Like my little Johnny Cochran thing there, they can select them, they can't direct them. 
Um, but that's the, that's the dispute because Washington says that Washington State says that they can do that. But but um, who so, chooses them? Who, who when we say oh, the state, the, who is that? Yep, in, every state does it differently. But in Colorado, and I don't, I haven't attended any of these these uh, state conventions, so somebody can probably give me the nuts and bolts even better. But in, in Colorado, there's a statute that says each major party or each party that might have a presidential winner or candidate um, selects their nine electors in Colorado. So the Democrats elect their nine. The Republicans elect their nine. And for the most part, we've just it doesn't really matter. Nobody really cares unless this 10th Circuit decision is upheld. And so each party picks their own electors. And then whoever wins the popular vote, that slate of electors gets to vote. Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense. And so two other questions. We're having more and more people become unaffiliated here in Colorado. So how yep. does that play into it? Uh, well, third parties um, can nominate their slate of electors as well. Um, it's just, you know, not likely that they're going to be needed. Um, so, you know, that's a political question, right? You know, if, if fewer and fewer people are in the uh, two major parties, and like in Colorado, that's a fact. I think 40% of the elect, uh, elect, what am I trying to say? Electorate. Eligible voters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of the electorate is unaffiliated. Um, and that's just a political question. You know, what are people going to do about about how we select all kinds of offices, you know, winners of all kinds of offices? Mm-hmm. But um, however we do that, it's not going to affect this major question of how do those electors, once they're picked, get to vote. And, and so is it like the Central Committee of the Democrat Party, Central Committee of the Republican Party that choose these electors? Or oh, man, who- you are going to know more about that than me. Um, I think that at the uh, state convention, there's an election for these people. Okay. Um, yeah, I, and again, if like, somebody has been there and done it and knows like, the actual nuts and bolts of it, um, how the ballots are handed out or whatever, if there's speeches, you know, I, I do not know that part of it. Okay, so you just know the law. That's the <laughs> <laughs> in this case. In okay. this case, anyway. Yeah. Okay, so there is um, there is tremendous danger for. I mean, we've had. I'm just thinking, we've had all these years of peaceful transition after our elections. I mean, this could really cause some trouble. I think. I think it could. I mean, I think we're talking about like you know some serious like. Like banana republic type third world um, uh, controversy here, um, if it all plays out that way. Um, again, I don't think it's likely, but it is certainly very possible. So it's important for us to know this, right? So if we know it, we can be prepared for it and try to not let it happen or not make it happen. Okay, so on these two court cases, uh, where do you think that they'll get to the Supreme Court before the election, or what sh- how's that going to work? I hope so. And, I, I, and uh, so the, there's actually a group, a progressive group that's behind these two lawsuits that's, like, funding them. Um, um, and equal votes or something like that. It's, it's, a, some, it's a Harvard law professor, I believe, who's actually behind it. And they want to get it to the U.S. Supreme Court. That's their entire goal is to get it there. Now, they hope it's going to be a, a step towards abolishing the Electoral College, which practically could happen. That's their hope. But it doesn't mean that's what the U.S. Supreme Court would do. Um, I think the U.S. Supreme Court will do what the Tenth Circuit did. Uh, although the Tenth Circuit, what, there's, only, there's only three judges on that panel. That's the way the, these federal circuit courts work. And it was a two-to-one decision. But the one who opposed Baca uh, said he should lose. 
did it on some uh, other procedural grounds, like he didn't have standing. So he didn't really get into that this, this, the meat of the issue. Uh, and that's possible the U.S. Supreme Court could do the same thing. I think that's going to be harder to do in Washington. So I, I think the U.S. Supreme Court will hear it. I think if they do, they're going to have to put it on an expedited schedule because it's one year from now almost, mm-hmm. you know, just over a year. So I think they would have to put it on an expedited schedule. Um, um, so I hope they do that. Okay. Now, on the Supreme Court, uh, do they have like, I mean, they have a certain amount of time that they hear cases and then they write about them. And then sometimes as they were getting out of session, then we'll see a lot of those decisions. So tell us about the Supreme Court. How does that work exactly? Well, um, the Supreme Court gets some ungodly number of petitions from people that want the Supreme Court to hear their case. And the Supreme Court has almost complete and total discretion about which cases they want to hear. So they get, I don't know what the number is, thousands and thousands of, of petitions for certiorari, which is like, hey, uh, hear my case, um, uh, the official request for that. But, and do those and, requests, though, do they have to go through the lower courts before they can get to the Supreme Court? Yes. Okay. Yeah, almost always. There are some unusual situations where that doesn't happen, but almost always, right. So if you start in federal court, you've got the federal district court level, the trial court, then you would appeal it to the, the Circuit Court of Appeals, and from there it would go to the U.S. Supreme Court. Okay. If you start in a state court, and there's only state issues involved, like in Washington, this issue is whether or not the state could bind their electors. Um, so they went to the state court, then it went to an intermediate level. Uh, you know what? It might not have gone to an intermediate in the state court of Washington, but it eventually gets to the state Supreme Court, and from there, if there is a constitutional issue, a United States constitutional issue, then the U.S. Supreme Court can hear it. So if you go to the state Supreme Court, you don't have to go to the, the district court, I'm sorry, the uh, circuit court level. You can bypass that intermediate federal level of appeals. Interesting. Okay, so you just mentioned that uh, this is this actually is, is fascinating. So you just mentioned that there is a progressive. So I'm I'm hearing radical activist agenda uh, to try to get these cases to the Supreme Court. And you said to get rid of the electoral college. The electoral college is in the Constitution. I how can the court actually get rid of something in the Constitution? They're not supposed to do that. They're supposed to no. interpret the Constitution, right? Right, exactly. Um, now, this group that wants to abolish the Electoral College wants to do it through this national popular vote. So they wouldn't have to amend the Constitution or, or ignore the Constitution to do that. Now, they've got some problems there as well, uh, because any interstate compact, which is what this national popular vote idea is, um, according to the Constitution, has to be approved by Congress. So even if enough states pass this NPV, national popular vote thing, like Colorado did, which will be on the ballot, of course, I think in October, right, to overturn that, which I hope we do. Um, but even if enough states join this compact, which they haven't done yet, it still has to be approved by Congress. So I don't think that's very likely to happen. Um, but I, I think there's some, some crazy legal arguments that they're going to try to put out there that it doesn't need congressional approval. Wow. Uh, I, don't see how they can, I don't see how they can do that. But, you know, I, the courts have done some things that I couldn't believe in the past as well. Well, and my understanding, just a correction, I think the national popular vote is on the 2020 ballot. I think. Okay. Yeah, I I, I think that it is. Uh, So what we are seeing is a real concerted effort uh, from multiple 
different ways to try to to really circumvent the Constitution. And the Constitution was put in place uh, to um, to take the vision of the Declaration that of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness for each individual and to try to keep government balance, a balance of powers, a separ- a separate the powers. And my guys, D.K. Williams, we are seeing an all-out assault on the Constitution. Your final thought. Well, um, I, I agree with you, and I think if you go back to my episode five of the law, which is Wicked v. Filburn, that was like the, the opened up the floodgates to the uh, uh, mass accumulation of power at the federal level that took it away from the, the, the states. So um, if you want to change the Electoral College, I get it. I get the arguments. But there's a process to amend the Constitution, and I think that is the way to go. I think these other ways to try to get around it are a little cute. I don't think they'll work. I understand why they're doing it. Um, I believe that there, uh, this notion that democracy is the ultimate goal of all government, which is what these, these national popular vote people are basing their, um, their goal on. They, they, they want a national popular vote that's more democratic because a democracy to them is obviously the best way to run a government. Well, that's an incorrect assumption. Yes. We know it's not because nobody wants 51 percent of the people to be able to ban a book. Or ban all the redheads back to Ireland. You, and you that's got what a democracy allows you to do. Right, so it's the tyranny of the mob. It's not the ultimate goal. Yeah, yeah so. exactly. It's not the ultimate goal. So their, their premises fail from my point of view. Okay, D.K. Williams, thank you so much. An amazing body of work. Go to Speakeasy Ideas and the Law. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it.